But it is exciting to be back. I'd like to share just a few comments with you about the trip before we get into the sermon. You know, I was looking at the maps in the back of the Bible today, the travels of the Apostle Paul. And I'm just thinking, what a contrast we have today. You know, Paul's second uh, journey that he made, he left Jerusalem, went up to Antioch, uh, then up through the churches in Asia Minor, over to Macedonia, Philippi, down through Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, and then back to uh, Jerusalem. It took him about three years to travel about 3,000 miles. His last trip from Jerusalem to Rome traveled about 2,000 miles, took another almost three years. I was away 16 days and traveled 20,000 miles. <laughs> it's, it's incredible, you know, what we can do today. Uh, he took Paul uh, three years to travel 3,000 miles. I traveled 3,500 miles from London to New York in about eight hours. Took him almost three years to travel 2,000 miles, Jerusalem to Rome. I traveled 2,000 miles from Johannesburg to Nairobi, Kenya in four hours, just one afternoon. It's just amazing what we can do today to serve God's people traveling around and what you know, the Apostle Paul and others had to labor to do. You know, Dr. Meredith and others did these baptizing tours around the country, and I'm sure they were real challenges uh, with the roads at that time and places to stay and being chased out of people's homes and all kinds of other things. That uh, I was just thinking about that this morning. This is probably one of the more challenging trips I've done just with the challenges that came along. Uh, the difficulties weren't uh, outside the U.S., they were inside the U.S. Uh, I flew up to uh, New York from Charlotte, went to get on the plane to South Africa. They looked at my passport and said, we can't let you on the plane. You don't have enough pages in your passport. And I had two or three, and I thought that would be enough. But you, uh, for those of you that travel, uh, don't let your pages run out, because I found the last two pages in your passport, which were empty in mine, are not for visas, they're for other things, if you get your name changed or something like that. So I, I'm there at the desk, I said, you mean you're not going to let me on the plane? He said, no. He said, we could, but they wouldn't let you in South Africa. You'd have to come back home. So I said, what do I do? He said, you've got to get more pages in your passport. I said, where do you get those? Downtown Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> what a thrill. I got to learn the uh, subway system in New York. <laughs> Couldn't get on the plane until the, uh, went up on Tuesday, couldn't get on the plane until Thursday. Well, the reason I want to talk about this for just a minute is, is to share some lessons. We had a businessman in our congregation, one of the churches I pastored, and I remember him saying years ago, he said, you know, you can solve most any problem if you're willing to make at least five phone calls. So I'm thinking, uh, I guess it's time to make some phone calls. So I made one phone call to the number they gave me, and they said, this doesn't work. You have to dial another number. <laughs> so I dialed another number. It was a recorded message. But halfway through the message telling me what to do, it cut out. So I dialed it again. Got about halfway through the recorded message, and it cut out again. So that was phone number three. Phone, number, phone call number four. I called back the uh, to passport agents, and they said, oh, it's a very sensitive message. You need to find a landline someplace, because I was trying my cell phone. 
So I found a landline, called, was able to make appointment. That was phone call number four. Uh, phone call number five, uh, forget what that was, but I wound up making about ten phone calls. And finally things began to work out. Uh, went up to the, I was flying Delta, so went up to the Delta desk and I said, uh, what do I have to do to get on the plane? Can you make a reservation for me for Thursday? He said, I can't make a reservation for you until you add extra pages in your passport. <laughs> so it was just one thing after another. And they said, by the way, there will be a, uh, a penalty charge and you'll have to buy a new ticket at current prices. And I'm beginning to think, should I really make this trip? You know, is God trying to tell me something? But, you know, the seven laws of success included praying and persevering. So I thought, well, this is the time to pray and persevere and make some more phone calls. So anyways, I was able to get some appointments. Um, I finally called Delta Airlines that night, told them what happened. She said, let me talk to somebody. And she came back and said, you know, it's our fault. We should not have let you on the plane in Charlotte. So since you're half, you know, you're partway through your trip, she said, we'll put you on a plane on Thursday, no additional charge. So I figured, I guess it's a trip that we're going to make. So it was interesting. Uh, the layover in New York gave me a chance to call a fellow that I'd gone to college with years ago. He'd worked for about 20 years in uh, Manhattan as part of Chase Manhattan Bank and another big bank there. So we get together every once in a while, and I said, I'm George, I'm in New York, I want to get together for dinner. He said, New York, yeah, let's do it. So we had a nice chat, we talked about uh, what's happening in the world and what's happening in the banking industry, and I said, what are your friends in uh, the banks have to say about what's happening? He said, we have never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. I said, what do you see for the future? He said, my friends are saying 2009 is going to be a very challenging year, probably a very difficult year. He had just retired in August, and things started to come apart in September. It was very interesting just to hear what he had to say. The trip basically was to uh, Cape Town, South Africa, then up to Johannesburg, where we did a service on the Sabbath at leadership uh, living leadership class that afternoon, actually an advanced leadership training program that evening. And then on Sunday had a one-day conference with the deacons, elders, and leading people there in South Africa. We talked about servant leadership and the application of that principle. Uh, we also talked about uh, challenges of doing the work in South Africa. Had a couple of very interesting chats with leaders and brethren there in South Africa about what is happening in that country. They were a little bit of filming the next day, then flew up to Kenya, had a Bible study in Nairobi, uh, as well as a chance to meet and talk with a number of the deacons and the elders there. I was very impressed with the dedication of our people, the dedication of our leaders, uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Peter Vanderbile in South Africa, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Botha and others, also with Mr. Simon Mathama in uh, Kenya. You know, he travels all over Kenya on public transportation. It takes him a day sometimes to get out to the West. Uh, he knows how to do it economically, but it's not the easiest thing to do. So I would encourage you, please keep these people in your prayers. Flew up to London, uh, spent uh, several hours, actually about an afternoon in the British Museum. Saw a very interesting exhibit on Babylon. They've got the, a model of the Ishtar Gate that they brought from the museum in uh, Berlin. 
and some other things from other parts of the world. What really took me back, though, they had you know, displays about uh, the Tower of Babel. They had displays about Daniel and the lion's den, Nebuchadnezzar, things like that. But the last two displays really caught me because of the anti-American flavor in these displays. The one display had a picture of um, a medieval print on Tower of Babel, kind of this thing that goes up, and uh, you've probably all seen it. But then right next to it, they had what looked like the same silhouette that there were buildings in Manhattan. You could recognize the uh, Empire State Building. But the implication was Babylon fell once, but you know, the American capitalistic system is now modern Babylon. And then this other thing was really kind of out of left field. They had an interview with a faculty member from uh, Jamaica, uh, taught at the University of West Indies campus there in Mona. And it was an interview with a bunch of Rastafarians, long-haired guys. And they were saying, well, the reason we hate America is because it exploits people and it's just like a modern Babylon. But these were the last two exhibits at the British Museum in this exhibition on Babylon. They said nothing about the EU being modern <laughs> and yet we did the tour through uh, the uh, parliament buildings there in Brussels and you listen to these little telephones and they say that uh, the parliamentary chamber is like a modern Babylon with all the different languages. But that was not in the Babylon uh, exhibit in the British Museum. It was nailing the Americans and putting down America, which I thought was rather sobering. It was, it was not something you expect uh, in Britain of all places. But again, had a very interesting visit there. Then we had a Sabbath service in London. It's exciting to see that church growing. In fact, uh, Mr. King and others are planning to start a number of other smaller congregations. Uh, Mr. John Macon is doing very well, as, as along with others that have come with him. So that was exciting to see these things. As you heard in the announcements and it's in the bulletin, one of the take-home lessons that I had from this last trip was in talks with people in both South Africa, in Kenya, as well as in London, where many people were just were very frustrated with what's happening in their governments. Uh, governments are just not functioning. That was one of the other challenges, was just getting out of Kenya. Uh, actually getting in was a challenge. Uh, flew into the airport, we got in about 5 or 5.30. What normally takes us about 20 minutes coming in from the airport took almost an hour and a half to two hours. There's several rotaries or roundabouts as you come into Nairobi from the airport. We got there at rush hour and it was just jam-packed with cars. Uh, you realize you're in a developing country again. I looked out the mirror or looked out the, the side window of the car. There was no mirror there. It was you know, The holder was there, but the mirror was gone. The uh, taxi cab... Uh, kept turning off his uh, engine because he didn't want to use up all his gas. And then it was hard to get the, the engine started again because <laughs> the starter switch wasn't working. Eventually, we got close to the hotel. Then we had a flat tire. So we got out and waited until he fixed the flat tire. It was just you know one thing after another. And eventually, we got to the hotel. Leaving Kenya was another story. Uh, we left on a Thursday night. My flight went out about 11.30 at night, quarter to 12. 
we left for the airport about 8 o'clock, so we thought we had four hours to get to the airport. Friday was their Independence Day. So, you know, it was party time. Trying to drive across Nairobi, almost every intersection was, was, was jammed up. Police were nowhere. So we, we took us almost two hours to get to the bus station. should have taken us about 15 minutes. Uh, the traffic jams were just something else. That uh, At one intersection, pedestrians were trying to untangle the traffic. And somebody would open up a hole and a taxi cab or something would jump right in there. But there's 10 cars coming the other way, but he wasn't going to move. It was, it, was, it was just incredible. And I'm watching my watch and thinking, am I going to get out of here? <laughs> Is it going to work? And I just started to pray. I said, God, please help us get to the airport on time. You know, get me to the station on time. <laughs> Then we headed to the airport, and normally there's two lanes going out of uh, Nairobi to the airport, two lanes coming in. And we noticed, well, this is congested more than usual. And then it turned out the lanes were going nowhere on our side of the road. And then the, the taxi cabs and cars were getting off the, 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 the road and driving along the shoulder. Now, they're not paved shoulders like we have here. You know, in Kenya, if you get a, a breakdown with your car or something, they put rocks on the road. Well, when they're not on the road, they store them <laughs> on the shoulders. So we're going down over these, these bumps and stones and everything else. And it turns out they were working on the other side of the road, so the cars coming into Nairobi were slowing down. So somebody got the bright idea five miles out of town, let's get over on the other side and come down the lanes of traffic that we're trying to go out. And we get down there four or five miles, and here's two lanes of traffic facing each other. And fortunately, our cab was able to get around on the side of the road. And we got to the airport, uh, I think about quarter 11. We were supposed to take off at 11.30 for an international flight. And as I'm going through the final security, the, uh, the uh, flight team on the airplane is finally getting through. They said, wow, that was an incredible traffic jam. But you're there. You can't do a thing. The only policeman I saw was making a cell phone call, probably saying, we have a problem. <laughs> but no red lights, no police cars, nothing. It was just, it was a challenge. I thought, I just wondered, will I ever get out of here tonight? And there's no place to stay at the airport. Would have had to go back through that traffic jam. So it was, it, it was a challenge this time. Uh, but anyways, the conversations I had both uh, in South Africa, in Kenya, and also in England, People were just frustrated with their governments. You know, Dr. Meredith has been talking about the importance of government. Jesus Christ is coming back to set up a government on this earth that is just, that is, that is righteous, that is concerned for people. And it was a young man in Nairobi who's not a part of the church. He was just talking about the corruption that is there. And this is all through. Uh, not only developing countries, we've got our problems here, Chicago, for example, and other places. <laughs> but he was just saying what we need are servant leaders. And he doesn't read the magazine that we publish. He says we need leaders who will serve people and not themselves. He says in Kenya it's a constitutional problem. The, the president is above the law. And if he wants this or he wants that, uh, they work it out and they get it. So the corruption that is there that just doesn't, you know, the, the countries don't function. South Africa was something similar. 
In many of these countries, whenever they got independence, certain tribes got into power, they keep the other tribal people out, but then they give all the jobs to members of their family and members of their tribe, whether or not they're qualified. And that's why these countries don't function. See, we have been called to be part of a coming government of God. And when you get outside the U.S., things here run fairly well. But when you get outside of here, things don't run the same. They run very differently. So it was exciting to see some of these things. It was sobering to see some of these things. Um, you know, the world that we know and the world that we have known growing up appears to be changing. It appears to be changing quite rapidly. You know, we have lived in a world that has domin been dominated for the last two, three, four hundred years by Western powers, European powers, Israelite countries that operate on a Judeo-Christian set of values. But what is happening today are the rise of non-Western powers to a large degree that do not function on a Judeo-Christian value system. They function on a very different value system. picked up an air, a book in the airport in New York written by a woman who was born and raised in Lebanon as a Lebanese Christian. She was there when the Muslims basically took over the country. And it's quite a story. I saw the title, Because They Hate. And she's trying to explain to Americans the threat against our country, not just America, but Europe. Uh, and other Christian countries. And it's, it's, it's quite sobering because she lived through a period of time when her neighbors, who were doctors and lawyers and businessmen, but they were Muslims, and they turned on these people. They turned on these people, and he, she had to live through that. She's written several books traveling around the, the world, giving speeches and actually advising the U.S. government on what we are facing today. Again, this is just one dimension of uh, what's happening in the world where countries are rising to positions of power that do not share our perspectives, do not share our values. They want to dominate the world with a totally different set of values. You know, I mentioned this before, but the book written by... Um, Samuel Huntington teaches at Harvard University entitled The Clash of Civilizations. This was written in 1996. And he's making comments in this book about the period of Western expansion has ended and a revolt against the West has begun. A revolt against the West has begun. Talks about non-Western societies are increasingly becoming movers and shapers of their own history. He also talks about the revolt against the West was originally legit legitimated by asserting universality of, of Western values. Um, but basically, he was talking about this 10 years ago. And what we're seeing today are these things are happening. So we are living in a world where things are changing, and things are going to change in a very different way. What I'd like to ask this afternoon as we get into the sermon as the world changes and as things begin to move in a very different direction, 
You know, for example, in South Africa, the, the white governments down there have dominated that country for several centuries. But in 1994, there was a change of government. There are 40 million blacks in South Africa. There are about three and a half uh, million whites. And things are going to change down there. The South African government that's been in power has been very sympathetic to what's been happening in Zimbabwe. They did not want to condemn what was happening there. And many people fear the same thing may happen in South Africa. Uh, they're going to have an election probably in March or April. Uh, the tribe that has been running South Africa, the Kaza people, are more urban people. The man who is now heading the African National Congress, the party that's in power, is a Zulu. The Zulus are agricultural people. And they've had pictures of this guy dancing around in native costumes with a lion skin on his back and a machine gun. He's going to bring a different set of values to that country. I asked some of our brethren down there, I said, do you, do, you, do you have any feeling for what's happening here? Are you concerned? And the comments were, well, it's not really that bad. I said, "Is do you sense there may be any parallel between the Jews in Germany prior to World War II and some of the Europeans down here? Well, it's probably not that bad. But I think we're going to have to watch. Uh, things are going to change very dramatically in this, in probably a number of parts of the world. And it's going to be stimulated by what we're seeing today, the financial crunch and what's happening uh, to the economies around the world. But the question I want to ask in the sermon this afternoon, as these things begin to take place, changes begin to take place, economies begin to come apart, unemployment rises, social unrest develops, how is this going to impact you? How is this going to impact your life? How is it going to affect you? Are you prepared for what's coming to get through what's coming? We could boil it down to the question, what are your priorities? What are your priorities? What is the most important thing in your life? Will your priorities and will the focus of your life get you through these changes that are coming? that the Bible talks about the crisis at the close of the age. Will your priorities, will the focus of your life get you through the difficulties that are coming? And will you be prepared for the new age that is coming just beyond these trials? Or will you, in the words of some of the books being available today, be left behind? Will you be left behind? Will you get caught up in some of the trials coming along and get discouraged? Will you be prepared for the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth? You might look at some of your, uh, some of your priorities for just a minute. What is the most important thing in your life? What do you spend most of your time thinking about? Where is your focus? On the Carolina Panthers, on the New York Giants, <laughs> on University of North Carolina basketball, where, what is your focus? Where do you 
Where is your heart? You might ask it that way. Are you focused on physical and material things? Are you focused on the here and now? Your job? Maybe finding a mate? Maybe finding a job? Or are you focused on more spiritual and eternal things? Preparing for the coming kingdom of God. That's a real concept to you. That guides your life and your decisions. Are you oriented towards the past and the good old days and nostalgia? Or are you preparing for the future? Are you excited about preparing for the future, anticipating what's coming and preparing for what's coming? I hope you'll think about these things as we go through the sermon today because our priorities determine what we think about. Our priorities determine how we use our time. Our priorities determine who we are in many cases. And in many cases, when we set priorities, they're going to be influenced by what's happening around us. One of the exercises that I went through a number of years ago in a graduate program was um, an exercise in, in setting priorities. I can describe it very quickly. We don't have time to do it here, but uh, sit down sometime by yourself or maybe with your mate or someone and make a list of 25 things that are most important to you, 25 things you'd like to do in your life, 25 things that uh, uh, you dream about you'd like to accomplish. Make a list. And then go back over it and ask yourself a question. If I have only one more year to live, how would I rearrange these priorities? And once you rearrange it, then ask yourself another question. If I have one week to live, what's the most important priority on my list? It's an exercise to help you prioritize what is really important in your life. I've done that a couple times. But priorities are determined in many cases by time frames. As time frames get shorter, sometimes we adjust our priorities. Let's look at some prophetic timetables for just a little bit. Because in setting priorities and considering priorities, we need to consider God's prophetic timetables. Now, I'm not going to talk about dates. I'm going to talk more about events. If we look at Matthew 24 for just a moment, Matthew 24, and also keep in mind, you might want to review this on your own later in Revelation chapter 6, where it talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which adds some other dimensions that we don't find in Matthew 24. But Jesus' disciples came to him and asked the question, tell us what are these things going to be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How are we going to know we're getting close to the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and so on. But he talks about signs that they will see. He didn't say, Now here's how you can calculate exactly how many years will be. He said, Here are events. Here are events to watch for. And we need to be watching for these events. 
First sign he talks about is religious deception. It's interesting that even uh, Samuel Huntington talks about uh, we're going to be seeing, now he's mentioning this in 1996, we're going to be seeing a rise of religion, uh, an increase of religion. And that's exactly what we've seen over the last decade or so. Uh, fundamentalist type religions, Islam, fundamentalist religions even here in the United States. People are rattling their Bibles and rattling their sabers and when you link that up with uh, Revelation chapter 6 on the first horseman, uh, it talks about a white horse and a man riding with a bow. It's not Jesus Christ, that's Satan the devil shooting arrows. But the implication is we're going to see much more militant religious movements. And that's exactly what we have seen. That's exactly what we have seen. You know, people with their religious fervor are burning down abortion clinics and things like that, blowing things up like that because they want to, you know, demonstrate what's right. And you've got the Muslims cutting people's heads off and encouraging people to blow other people up. This uh, book on why they hate, again, it's written by a woman. She makes some very interesting observations. She said, how, you know, she asked some questions. Why would a woman blow herself up and blow up other people? She said, you need to understand how things operate in the Muslim world. If a woman is accused of, uh, of moral improprieties, or she lets her hair hang out below the, the scarf or whatever, she can be put to death by her husband, by her brothers, because she has brought shame on the family. And apparently some of the Muslims' terrorists have appealed to these, these, these women. Well, you're, you're going to bring shame on your family because of what you've done. But if you martyr your life, if you blow yourself up, you can bring honor to your family. So they're seeking vulnerable people and exploiting people to cause death and destruction for other people. See, we live in a country, it's the same way in England and parts of Europe, that uh, have bought into this politically correct idea of multiculturalism, that we're all the same. Nobody's any better than anybody else. And she is saying that is a bunch of baloney. That is a bunch of baloney. You know, cultures are very different. We don't cut people's heads off. We don't cut people's hands off. We don't stone them to death. You know, they get a trial. But she was just bringing out the fact that she's lived in that type of a culture. And she's very grateful to be able to live in a country that's very different. She said one of the reasons the Jews are hated in the middle of the Middle East is they are a country that has freedom of speech, that treat people more humanely. She said you don't have to bribe your way into things in Israel that you do in other Arab countries. She said, they're not all the same. They're very different. But Jesus' disciples were asking for signs, and Jesus gives signs. He talks about, many will come in my name and deceive many. And we're seeing that within the church of God, what has happened over the last decade or so. But when you link this with Revelation chapter 6, and it talks about this uh, 
individual on a white horse with a bow. This is picturing a more militant type of religion that kill people if they don't believe what you believe. I was watching a film on the uh, computer last night uh, produced by a Dutch fellow where he's taken verses from the Koran and then put news clippings with it. You know, I mentioned this last year at the feast, and I think some people got upset. I said, if you want to understand the Middle East, read the Koran. Dr. Winnell was telling people to read the Koran <laughs> for informational purposes only. <laughs> you know, not to be converted, but you need to read the verses there. It says, you know, you know, cut people's heads off that don't believe the same way as you do. It's a very different religion. It's not a religion of peace. And that lady brings it out. She said that this... This idea that uh, Islam is a religion of peace is, is baloney. It's not true. But there is a lot of religious deception today. Verse 6, Matthew 24, talks about wars and rumors of wars. That's certainly what we see today all over the place. You know, it's sobering. It is sobering every time I go into South Africa, primarily around Johannesburg that the people there that have any type of money or property are really living under siege. They've got big six-foot cement walls around their house with several rows of electric wire on top of that and, and surveillance cameras, and most everybody has two or three big dogs in their house. As one of our members was saying, we don't drive after dark. We don't drive after dark. It's just not safe. Yet I've I saw other people driving around. I guess it depends on where you live and what happens. Uh, <clears throat> but it's, it's sobering to see people live like that in such a beautiful country, uh, but not a very pleasant place to live, talking with people in the congregation in Kenya. Uh, and again, I've been working with these people, talking with these people for the last, I don't know, seven or eight years. So one young fellow has uh, four or five children in the family, has to work in Nairobi. His family lives outside of town. He can't afford bus travel back and forth because it's just too expensive and he doesn't make that much money. He said, I've got a 14-year-old boy at home that needs guidance, but I can't afford to go home. I can't afford to be there. He said, just living in the country is becoming extremely difficult. Paying bills is difficult because we don't make very much money. Other people were mentioning that uh, it's hard to get jobs in Kenya. And I think the same thing in South Africa, unless you know someone in the government, unless you have connections. doesn't matter about your skills. It's who you know. And the opportunities are just not there. Now, you probably remember a month or just a couple of months ago, they were having all kinds of violence in Kenya. And I couldn't figure out why are they having violence because some of the places where they're chasing people out of town and chopping people's heads off and whatever, there's nothing there. It's out in the Rift Valley. It's like living in the middle of Arizona or New Mexico. Not much there. And talking about that this time, I found out at least why. When Joma Kenyatta was president during independence, he belongs to a particular tribe. His tribe was very numerous. So they resettled many people from his tribe out into the middle of the Rift Valley amongst other tribes. This was where the violence was when things began to happen a number of months ago. They went after these people who had been resettled there. 
what they do? They burned the food that they'd stored. They burned the seeds that people had, and they burned the fertilizer, which means they're going to be in, they're going to be in trouble having things to eat one of these days. And it all stemmed from politically motivated violence, one tribe against another tribe. This is how many people are having to live today. It's very sobering. But this is what the Bible talked about, wars and rumors of wars. These things are going to have to come to pass. Nation will rise against nation, and we've pointed out previously. Verse 7, this word nation is ethnos in the Greek, which means one ethnic group against another ethnic group. That's what's happening in South Africa, what's happening in Kenya, it's happening in Northern Ireland, basically. One ethnic group, one religious group against another. And this is happening all around the world. This book by Samuel Huntington, a number of people mentioned in this book that ethnic violence will probably eclipse the threat of atomic violence in the coming decades. And that's what we're reading about and experiencing around the world. But this is what the Bible talks about. Uh, it talks about famines, disease epidemics. Now we tend to equate famines with weather changes. Too much, uh, not enough rain, whatever else. But famines can also be humanly caused. When you burn up seed, when you burn up fertilizer, when you um, uh, make it too uh, dangerous for people to go out into the fields, these are humanly induced things. This young gentleman we were talking to in Kenya was mentioning that uh, many politicians in the country own farms, then they own the flour mills that process the, the wheat, and then they own distribution centers. And he says they can contrive shortages so that prices go up. And it only has to go up for a couple of weeks. They make a lot of money, and then they alleviate the shortages. But it's all contrived to make money. And he says a lot of that money then goes into Swiss bank accounts, goes out of the country. He said it's just very frustrating because of the corruption. You know, he says we can't live a decent life. And he was the young man that said what we need are servant leaders. And that's just not editorial filler that Dr. Meredith came up with. <laughs> These things really are true. We have been called to become servant leaders, to learn how to serve and to have eyes that see and hearts that care, that want to help, that want to change the way things are being done in this world. In Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, in Daniel 2, Daniel was given the capacity to understand talking about and again the world is relative basically the Middle East at that time before governments most of which scholars recognize is talking about the Roman and it's going to have several going to have uh, you know which is the final phase of that empire that is linked to Rome. It's talked about here in verse 41. You saw the feet. It's partly potter's clay, partly of iron. Please don't make it together that well. 
We are seeing this happen today with the rise of the EU and Europe and how that is going to all work out. I think we just have to wait and see. It was interesting talking with uh, Adrian Hilton, the young man that wrote the book on uh, Principalities and Power of Europe that talks about the role of the Catholic Church. Had lunch or had dinner actually with uh, Mr. Hilton on Monday night of last week before flying back here. It was just interesting talking with him. The young man is very well connected. Uh, he said he was having dinner with David Cameron, who is now the head of the Conservative Party, and talking about uh, their conversation uh, a couple of years ago now, but it was before the, he was selected to be head of the Conservative Party. But he's on first-name basis with them, talks with them all the time. Uh, I said, do you know Boris Johnson? Boris Johnson is now the mayor of London. Uh, he was, uh, and I don't know whether he's probably not yet, but uh, he was the uh, uh, a member of parliament in Britain and also editor of a magazine, political magazine there. But Johnson is quite a character. Uh, he's written this book entitled The Dream of Rome. And he talks about uh, this dream of Rome has fascinated Europeans. You know, Napoleon, Charlemagne, so on. But he talks about one of the secrets of Rome, of the Roman Empire, was emperor worship. That everybody worshipped the emperor. And as we were talking with Mr. Hilton, uh, he was mentioning that he and Boris had lunch together recently. And they were talking about their books. They've each written books. And I said, uh, Adrian, I said, uh, does Mr. Johnson understand what's happening with the Catholic Church? He says he understands more than he talks about. He said he can't write about some of these things, but he's trying to restore what he views as Christian values in England. He said we even put up a Christmas he even put up a Christmas tree this year. He said he's an Anglican, kind of loosely associated with the Anglican Church. But here are two individuals uh, trying to do their part. But Mr. Hilton's comment was, how do you stop a train once it's already started going? I said, what, what, what do you think is the Queen's role uh, in, in terms of England becoming part of Europe? He said, I think she's commiserating. She's commiserating. He said, she signed the Lisbon Treaty and she didn't have to. He said, she had several years and she didn't need to sign that treaty right away, but she signed it very quickly. I said, why do you think she did that? He said, I don't know. He said, she's, she is probably protecting the members of her family to make sure that they have a throne to take over. He said, if she would resist uh, Parliament and go against uh, this move towards Europe, so they'd probably do away with the monarchy. So she's watching out for her throne. I remember talking to a gentleman that's involved with one of the British Israel Associations a number of years ago. And he said, we pray today that the queen will stand up and take a position. Well, she signed the treaty. Mr. Hilton said she could have taken a position of warning her ministers, you know, don't do this. There will be consequences to this. But she signed it. And what I sensed in talking with him was a frustration. Is that we see the direction our country's going, but we can't do anything about it. I said, what do you think Tony Blair is going to do? 
in the years ahead. He said, I think he's going to run to become the president of Europe. And he said, if the Brits see one of their own leading Europe, and if the pound is basically equal to the euro or less, he said there'd be much less reluctance to become part of Europe. And we felt that they would not be part of it. But if they are drawn in subtly, if they're drawn in through the back door, it's interesting watching what's been happening to, to England that uh, before I left over there, it was a German company that has basically bought and controls the water purification plants all through England. What was in the paper just last week was that DHL, which is a German postal company, is bidding to uh, control the Royal Mail because they're privatizing these companies. Uh, before I left over there, there were two German companies bidding on the London Stock Exchange. They wanted to take it over. You know, all the ammunition for British uh, forces is now made in France, not in England. England, when I was over there, was reorganizing their military so their units would fit with European units. You know, if they are drawn in against their will, they will become subject to European laws and European courts. We just have to see what's going to happen. Uh, many people in England are frustrated because they see what's happening to their country. They don't like it. They're not happy about it. As Mr. Hilton says, how do you stop a train once it's gone? Working with these people because people in South Africa were concerned about what's where their country is going to go. In Kenya are worried about what's happening in their country, where it's going to go. Uh, people in England were worried about what's going to happen in their country. Uh, it's very sobering to see these things happening. In Revelation 13, if we go there quickly, <clears throat> Revelation 13 is talking about <clears throat> Two beasts, one coming up out of the sea, one coming up out of the land. It's talking about a beast power arising in Europe and then talking about that is going to influence and guide what is happening. And I just want to focus on a couple of verses. Talking about this first beast that comes up out of the sea. Verse 3, it says, I saw one of his heads and as it was mortally wounded, his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon that gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like it? You know, what's it going to take to get the whole world looking to and amazed at a resurrected, a resurrected Roman Empire in Europe, where it all comes together? In uh, verse... 11, 12, and 13, talking about this other beast. As two horns like a lamb spoke like a dragon. It's talking about a false religious leader, very influential religious leader that's in cahoots with the beast. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast. In other words, it gets the whole world focused on this beast, whose deadly wound was healed. In other words, it came back. He performs great signs so that 
even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and it deceives those who dwell on the earth by these signs. If you get a religious leader in your performing signs and doing miracles and is linked up to uh, a beast power that has its links to the Roman Empire, this is going to shake the world. It's going to get people's attention. I mentioned this before that Mr. Hernandez and I drove up through uh, central part of Portugal a number of years ago. I think three or four years ago, I forget exactly. But we visited Fatima. It's a little town in central uh, part of Portugal where several little girls uh, back what in the early, early 1900s, I think it was, late 1890s, whatever, saw a vision in the sky of the Virgin Mary. They've got a great big plaza there, almost like in St. Peter's. They were building a 10,000-seat auditorium with an underground parking garage whenever we were there. And every year in March or April, whenever these girls saw that vision, you get about, I don't know, five, 10,000 people just <coughs> converge on this little town of Fatima. And they're hoping to see something else. If they do this over the next couple of years and they see something else, and CBN or NBC or whatever, <laughs> the television cameras are there and they point up in the sky and they see this, it's going to rock people to their foundations. If they hear a pope saying, we are the true church, see what we can do? You know, most people don't know their Bibles. They don't understand Bible prophecy. And they'll probably go trotting along with this. But this is what the Bible talks about. These are the signs that people are going to see. It talks about a harlot riding the beast, persecutes the saints. And about ten nations or ten leaders or ten regions are going to give their surrender their sovereignty to this power that arises in Europe. Let's go to um, Daniel chapter 11 quickly. I just want to look at these, these signs that the Bible talks about. Uh, we appear to be watching beginning to take place today. We've talked about these things for years. In Daniel 11, beginning in verse 40, it talks about at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack this king of the north, and the king of the north will come against him. Uh, this word attack can also be translated pushing against. You know, Europe is concerned about the Muslim immigration. This lady in the book, uh, Why They Hate Us, mentions that some cities in Europe are about 25% Muslim. About 25%. And these Muslims are people that don't mind cutting off people's heads. And if you get discontent among people like they had in France a year or so ago, you know, it can bring a nation to its knees. She is quoting a man who is a respected Muslim in this country. He gave an opening prayer for Congress. And then sometime later, he was speaking to a Muslim group. And he said, you know, as Muslims, we're kind of politically, we're not very clever politically. He says, with six million of us, we could take over this country. This guy in England that used to stand on a soapbox down in one of the parks. And he was talking about taking over England and instituting Muslim law and that they needed to take over the country. And he was on the British welfare system, living off of the taxes that people were paying. 
They finally got him out of the country. But it took several years to do that. This is the world we're living in. It could change very rapidly. But it talks about something. There's going to be a push. Now, how this push uh, comes across, it could be explosions that go off in London, explosions that go off in Brussels. They've happened already in some of these countries. You know, what's it going to take? How soon is it going to be? You know, what happens if some of those explosions go off? You know, we've talked about you know, a foreign power coming in and taking over our country, dropping bombs. What if the bombs are set by people that are already here in New York City or Atlanta? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how it's going to happen. It mentions these things will happen. And we need to keep our eyes open as to how these things will happen. You know, America has deployed or designated certain military units to serve in domestic, uh, for domestic purposes, I think beginning in a year or so. In other words, taking military combat units but making them available to serve within the continental United States if things begin to come apart. The Germans are doing exactly the same thing, designating certain units to serve for domestic purposes, to maintain when things, if things begin to explode. I mean, this is the world we're living in that could change overnight, just like the, uh, the Twin Towers coming down. When I was in New York, I had a whole day to kind of walk around, so I walked down where the Twin Towers were, big hole in the ground. They're going to be building some other things right there. But just in walking around New York, I had this feeling, this is not the way God designed people to live. And high towers like this and streets that are crammed and it's just busy all the time. Uh, was, it was not the most pleasant experience. But the Bible talks about there's going to be a push at the end of the age by this king of the south. You know, in your bulletin today, I think the, the second news item talks about the Arabs are wanting to put together uh, uh, an organization where they, they share currencies and they, they share their resources and so on. Things are moving in a direction. It's not there yet, but things are moving in a direction. Again, it talks about this that's going to dominate this. Yeah, I've just wondered if, if we're going to see a parallel in some way between what happened when the Roman Empire came apart and what's happening today. Now, the Roman Empire kept peace for hundreds of years. But when it came apart, there were armed bands roving all over the country and chaos all over the place. Who was it that stood tall and kind of was the rock of stability after the Roman Empire came apart? It was a Catholic church and the monasteries that held a certain semblance of order. If things begin to come apart in Europe, and the Catholic church has been there, it's been against abortion and against this and against that, and they have got a system of government uh, that, that really stretches all around the world that they can begin to tap into. My understanding is that... Uh, if some foreign countries need to understand what's happening in certain countries, they call the Jesuits and they call some of the, 
the guys in the Vatican because they've got connections with monks and priests and nuns all over the place, all over the world. But there could be, I was talking with Mr. Hilton, this was interesting. Uh, we talked about this before. I said, are you uh, aware of what the Habsburgs are doing? He said, what, who? I said, I was just reading not too long ago where the oldest son of the, um, the Habsburg family has been designated as kind of an ambassador at large in Czechoslovakia or one of those Eastern European countries. And his sister was going to run for parliament, I believe, in Spain. And another brother was um, getting some sort of a, an administrative post up in the Balkans. And the comment was, "We, our destiny is to serve the people of Europe. And Mr. Hilton had mentioned in his book, he said, you know, he's got a quote that talks about that there may yet be a role for the Austro-Hungarian crown that uh, Otto von Habsburg had essentially made that comment. But this stuff doesn't make a whole lot of news today. But if things begin to come apart on a political scene, there is a religious figure that could serve as a person to rally around. And he's got this structure that's there and that functions. And if this person also does miracles, the world is going to be looking in a direction you know, for somebody to stand up and be counted. You know, this period of time is also called the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30. Now, you're familiar with that. It's interesting to read that whole chapter. It talks about the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, towards the early part of the chapter, verse 7 talks about Jacob's trouble. He will be saved out of it. But in verse 24, the very last sentence of the chapter says, In the last days you will consider it. At the end of the age, you will understand what this chapter is talking about, what these prophecies are all about. And talks about verse 12, Your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe, you have no healing medicines, all your lovers have forgotten you. In time of Jacob's trouble, when the world turns against the people of America, Britain, other parts of the world. You know, the Bible talks about that time period as a time of the Gentiles, a time when the Gentiles begin to dominate things. Jerusalem is going to be trodden down for 42 months. Time of the Gentiles. You know, that is exactly what, um, what um, Samuel Huntington was talking about 10 years ago. He says, we're seeing a revolt against the West. We're seeing a decline of the influence of Western powers, basically. He doesn't call it that, but Israelite nations. And a resurgence of Gentile nations, China, India, Pakistan, Russia, Germany. And they are going to dominate the world for a short period of time. And it's going to be a very different world, a very different world that we need to be prepared for. Why is this going to happen? Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, the blessings and cursings are there. Over the years, we've talked about the blessings, how Israelite nations have you know, possessed much of the world, most resources. But the other part of that chapter, and again, we understand that, is that if we disobey God, forget God, turn away from God, then he's going to take all these things away from us. 
and talking with a, another gentleman in South Africa several years ago. He's an Afrikaans person. He said, I was asking him, I said, what are your people feeling down here? And he said, they're beginning to ask, why is God taking our country away from us? They recognize what's happening. And these are Protestant people. They fear God in their way. And they can't understand why their country is being taken away from them. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 explains that. Basically, our nations have had wrong priorities. They've followed wrong advice. They've made bad decisions. They've turned their back on God. And God is going to punish us as a result. So one other scripture in Matthew 24. This is what's coming and what we need to be prepared for. <clears throat> Matthew 24. Talks about a great tribulation is coming. Verse 21 and 22 says, For there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Now think about some things. It's going to be worse than the fall of Samaria, the worse than the fall of Jerusalem, worse than the fall of Rome, worse than the attacks on London during World War II. Worse than the Inquisition. What it's saying here is what we're going to see, a tribulation that has not been since the beginning of the world. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days are going to be shortened. You and I have been called to be part of an elect group of people. To recapture true values, to draw closer to God, to learn God's way of life so that we can then teach this way of life literally to the world. Kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? But that's what the scripture says. That's what the book says. That's why we've been called. Let's conclude by talking a little bit about priorities. What should our priorities be? Now, these are not overly profound, but they are extremely important. Let me give you as many as we can cover here. Number one, we should have as before the true God. Exodus chapter 20. Ask yourself, what is your God? Is it your car? Is it your home? Is it your job? Is it a special relationship with somebody? What is your God? God is a jealous God, he says, and don't have any other gods before me. We need to get our priorities straight. It can't be money, can't be physical things, can't be a career path. It really has to be obeying God and living by every word of God. That's got to be our main f focus in life. You know, Jesus told his disciples, Matthew 4, 4, live by every word of God. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And John mentions later in 1 John, commandments are not a burden. They're not a burden. They're the key to the future. Another priority, Matthew 5, 48, says strive to become perfect. Be you therefore perfect. Many Christians are told today, well, you can't be perfect. Jesus is the only one that's perfect. You can't be, so don't worry about it. 
But that's not what Jesus told his disciples. He said, become perfect. The word means become spiritually mature. You know, understand my way of life. Learn to live that way. You know, Abraham was told, you know, walk before me and become perfect. That's what it means. We've got to be praying on a regular basis, studying on a regular basis, meditating. You know, why am I here? Where am I going? Why did God call me into the church? God, how can you use me? Let God work with you. But seek to become perfect, spiritually mature, developing the mind of God. You know, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, we have the mind of God. And some people say, that, oh, that's blasphemy. You can't have the mind of God. Paul said he did. He said, we have the mind of God. With God's spirit, nourishing that spirit from God's word, developing godly perspectives. That's how we develop the mind of God. Number three. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. See, what is the guiding priority in your life? Do you want to be in the kingdom of God? Are you preparing for that? Are you excited about that? Does that motivate you? You know, on this trip and talking with people and to see the frustration they have with the governments they have to live under and the suffering that they're going through. You know, this definition of leadership I'd heard a number of years ago. A leader is a person who wants to change circumstances that are hurting other people. Is that you? Do you desire to do that? To change circumstances that are hurting other people? That you want to change things? You want to turn the world right side up? Is that you? Is that your priorities? Seeking first the kingdom of God, making God's priorities your priorities. Point number four. <clears throat> Jesus said in John 4.34, he says, my meat is to do the work. My meat is to do the work of God, to finish the work of God. My purpose in life. And Mr. Armstrong had made the comment years ago, people that do not have their heart in the work don't stay in the church. Where is your heart? Is it to reach the world? Is it to change the world? Is it to serve mankind? You know, if the Habsburgs understand and feel that their destiny is to serve the people of Europe, what is your destiny? What is your focus? Where do you want to expend your efforts and energies? In Matthew 10, Jesus told his disciples, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We need to know who they are, where they are, and deliver a message to them. And we've got a job to explain to people who they are, why they've been blessed, and why these blessings are going to be taken away. Point number five, Jude, verse three. We need to earnestly contend for the faith that we delivered. How many people have left the church of God going back to keeping Sunday? Started keeping Christmas, started keeping Easter, and praise the Lord. That assume that the Trinity is true. Assume we have uh, an immortal soul. And assume they go to heaven. 
The Bible says no to all of these things. You know, the church has been blown off track in recent years. People that sat here, people that went to the feast, have dribbled off in different directions. They're buying into all kinds of things today. Our job is to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. Have you proven what it is that you believe? Do you know that you know that you know that you know what you believe? These are things we've got to do. Earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. Point number six. Matthew 17, 11, Recapture true values. What is the way to a happy marriage? What is the way to raise balanced, positive children? What is God's way for resolving conflict? How would God restructure educational systems? Cities are going to be rebuilt. How will they be rebuilt? Using biblical principles. Recapture true values. We've been called to restore all things in our family lives, our personal lives, in the churches that we serve. Big challenge. Point number seven. In terms of setting priorities. Prepare to teach and prepare to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21 says, People will see their teachers, and those teachers are going to say, This is the way to go. This is the way to peace. This is the way to happiness. This is the way to justice. This is how you do things. And we've got to be able to confidently say, This is the way. And yet we're growing up and living in a society, so, you know, everybody's okay. I'm okay, you're okay. What makes you think you're right? And we've got to be able to say, I am right. (laughs) The Bible is true. These things work. But people are going to see their teachers. That's the prophecy that's there. Revelation 5.10 and other places lets us know we're going to have the opportunity to reign with Jesus Christ. That means to lead, to guide, to make decisions, and to point people and point nations in a direction. We're learning to reign right now within our own families, on the job, the people that you work with. Can you get along with people? Are you always grumbling? Good old Israelites, murmur, 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 murmur. We can't do that. You know, do we think we're going to function in the government of God if we can't get along with each other? We're kidding ourselves. We've got to be able to work together harmoniously, not trying to climb over other people. You might go back over these priorities. Do you have other gods in your life, number one? Number two? Are you striving to become perfect, developing the mind of God? Number three, are you really seeking first the kingdom of God in everything that you do? You check yourself. Am I on target? Is my focus on target? Am I working towards the kingdom of God? Point number four, is our heart in the work? Are we praying for the work? 
that God would open doors, enable us to go through those doors. 2009 looks like it's going to be a very challenging year. We need to be praying that God would provide the needs that we need to have to do the work of God and protect the jobs of God's people so that we can have an income flow to do what we need to do. Number five, are you prepared and are you able to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered? Did you pick up on things? I remember talking to Carl McNair years ago whenever they're beginning to make changes in the worldwide church of God doctrine. He says they're gone for the Trinity. I said, Carl, how do you know? He said, I know. <laughs> they're gone for it. And sure enough, they did go for it. That's where they are today. And he saw it coming. He saw it before I did. But are we ready and capable of contending for the faith that was once delivered? Are we striving to recapture true value? What things work? Start making a list of those things. How do you have a happy family? How do you raise happy children? You know, how do you do things God's way? And number seven, are you preparing to teach and reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God? Brethren, we're living in a period of time where the world that we have known, the world that we have grown up in, is changing. And it's going to change very dramatically in a direction that we have not been used to going. You know, the nations that are rising today and going to do things, where's all the money today? It's in China. They have a very different set of values than we do. Where's all the oil today? Underneath the Arab sands. And they have a very different set of values than we do. The world we live in is changing. Are we prepared to deal with that? Will the priorities and the focus that you have today, will that prepare you and get you through what's coming? Or are you going to be blown away? Will I be blown away? Is your focus on the kingdom of God going to prepare you for what's coming beyond the trials? Trials are coming <laughs> sooner than we realize. But there's also good news beyond. Exciting news beyond. And Jesus Christ is preparing a group of people to reign with him in the coming kingdom of God. He needs to know what your priorities are. He needs to see each of us preparing. He needs to see each of us excited about what's coming because those are God's priorities. And he's having a chance to look at ours today. It's good to be home. Good to be back with you, but we've got a big job to do.